welcome to Stenivers Podcast Episode 37. In this episode, Peter talks with Dr. Mark Nooks. Mark earned his PhD in science on scholarship with the CSIRO. CSIRO is the Commonwealth of Australia Scientific and Industrial Research Organisation, which is an independent agency of the Australian Federal Government responsible for scientific research in Australia. This provided Mark an apprenticeship in research management, professional communication and a solid background in the understanding of science. He then undertook a four-year postdoctoral fellowship at Washington State University, which enabled him to develop professional communication skills in addition to leadership, management and ICT skills. Upon returning to Australia, Mark undertook postgraduate studies in education and gained employment as a high school science teacher. His high school teaching career enabled him to develop quality teaching skills, develop a sound understanding of the 7-10 science curriculum, HSC Biology, HSC Earth and Environmental Science, and HSC Senior Science Syllabi, and contribute to science curriculum leadership. As a STEM specialist educator and NASA-endorsed professional development provider, Mark works with schools and STEM-related organizations to develop and deliver high-quality teaching and learning programs and resources through curriculum leadership, professional development mentoring and classroom support. In our conversation, Mark talks about disengagement from science of students as they grow into adulthood, re-engagement, helping teachers gain confidence in their ability to teach science, misunderstandings around STEM, hands-on learning and collaboration, why being a polymath helps in being a better teacher, and much more. This is Stemiverse Podcast Episode 37. Stemiverse is a podcast produced by Tech Explorations. Our mission is to help educators become awesome at teaching STEM, be it at home or in the classroom. Whether you are a professional or casual teacher, teaching in a classroom, or a parent or caretaker teaching at home, this podcast brings you the knowledge and experiences of practitioners, academics, entrepreneurs and lifelong learners who are passionate about education and strive every day to help our children prepare for life in a world of radical change. And why not abundance? This podcast is brought to you by Tech Explorations, a leading provider of educational resources for makers, STEM students and teachers. For a limited time only, go to texplore.com slash stemiverse and receive Peter's latest ebook, Maker Education Revolution, a book about how making is changing the way that people learn and teach in the 21st century. Okay, so here we are with Mark Noakes. So, hello, Mark. Thank you for joining me. Hi, thank you for having me along. It's, um, I'm really quite excited about this. Yes, I've, I've been reading a lot about you and uh, I'm also very excited. And uh, the reason for that is that you're not just a teacher, you're also a teacher's teacher or trainer. That's right. Um, so I, I guess I work in classrooms with teachers and their students to help them in, in science then. Mm. And today you, you're actually teaching kids. You had a classroom. I do still teach 
I still I still teach classes. I maintain my qualification as a teacher. So I still do. I teach in primary school. I'm high school trained. I transitioned out of high school and now I have my authority to teach primary as well. So I do a bit of a mixture when when the opportunity arises to have a class. But for the most part, I'm in working with teachers as a mentor, I guess. What do you enjoy better if you can actually say oh, one or the other? Question. <laughs> <laughs> I think I enjoy working with teachers and their students because it's teaching at two different levels at the same time. Mm, yep. I have a similar experience to that. I do run workshops online. Most of them tend to be online. But I haven't had the opportunity to teach smaller kids like uh, less than 18 years old. So uh, I don't have that experience, which uh, I should probably seek somehow. I have to say I'm really enjoying working with primary students. They're so open yeah. and so receptive to anything new and to, to conceptual learning. Yeah, well, when I am visiting classes, especially when my kids used to go to school, well, they would do homeschooling now, so they're still practically at school. But uh, I really enjoyed the enthusiasm. It's like something that I don't see in university <laughs> much. Competitively speaking, it's like when they run, especially out of the class and being so happy about that. Yeah, and <laughs> it's it's nice to say, I guess it's nice to see them being themselves. Like when they're a bit older in high school, they mm. tend to put on their masks and they clam up. They're a bit different person, I think. In primary school, you get to see the real child. Yeah, exactly. How do we maintain that? Tough question. <laughs> is, um, is this something that we should actually maintain at all? Like, I, I, I think if you talk to high school teachers who enjoy their job and who have built a really close rapport with their students, they probably will say that still engagement is the primary factor in, in seeing the real person in high school. It's when kids are disengaged that you start seeing lots of other things that, that are influencing their lives. So something happens uh, in their lives. I think, as you said, I don't think it's just school, but it's just the pressure of growing up and you know, becoming an adult, right? Yeah, it's a very difficult mm. uh, yeah, question they, to answer. Yeah, they take a lot on board in high school, I think, and it's mm. so it's very difficult for students these days given the number of social streams that are, that are firing off at them and that, that they're involved in to maintain yeah. a perception of the world that is coherent, I guess. Yeah, I find that we perhaps are too hard on young people these days. If you think about how much they have to deal with in a relatively short amount of time when it comes like growing up, that, that happens very quickly these days. Yeah, uh, I think there's a lot to deal with. that in primary school here, even. Yes, exactly. Oh, yeah, the pressure in kindergarten. I've actually witnessed that as well. Anyway, let's uh, take a step back and talk a little bit about you first. I'd like you to take a few minutes and tell us about your background and you know how long you've been teaching and actually what drove you into teaching. Uh, perhaps at what point you decided to transition into becoming an instructor for teachers. Sure. And uh, we'll take it from there. So I'll go all the way back to the beginning then. I started out life as a molecular geneticist working in research laboratory. And I was working overseas at the time. And come time to move back to Australia, there were really limited opportunities in that field. And my PhD supervisor had said to me, she'd been an English teacher in her previous career, and she said that I was wasting my time in the laboratory, that I should have been in a classroom or in education. I did my doctorate with the CSIRO, and so when, when they had the schools come around, I was often involved in doing those visits. 
And that's where it stems from. I, I returned back to Australia and decided, well, here's an opportunity for me to go back to study and I did my education degree and found a job teaching in high school. I think I was – so I came out science-trained and religious education-trained, believe it or not. Hmm. <laughs> uh, I was employed in a high school as a science, maths, and music teacher. Music is – it was the, the subject that always sat in the background with me. I did all my grade work on piano. I'm a music teacher these days. I love playing bands. But it was never the mainstream focus for my career. Science was to be my career. So anyway, I I became a high school science teacher with the view to influencing more people into science, encouraging more people into science, because I had enjoyed that journey up to that point so much. And I taught math, science and music in high school for, I think it was for nine years. And during that time, we had groups of primary school students come in to do their orientation days. And there was a year five immersion program that I had a hand in developing. And I really enjoyed it. Um, I really enjoyed seeing the very different point of view that students had. And I guess teaching year seven and year eight students, I was seeing that as well. Kind of a bit of a naivety in students about science yeah. or you could tell that they really hadn't engaged. A lot of them didn't know, didn't understand what science really was. Uh, I think it was about a three-year period of transition then from in, from high school into where I'm, what I'm doing now. All right. Um, and the the reason that I jumped out of high school was to pursue that interest in student engagement in primary school. I guess the research literature shows that by the end of year six, if students are not engaged in science, then they won't re-engage in science education. And that's a problem in high school as a high school teacher, I guess, a lot of high school teachers face. Uh, so that's, you know, I, I found a kind of a niche there. I, I'd heard of a couple of other people in different states doing similar things in primary school. So high school teachers jumping back into primary school. But rather than just become a primary school classroom teacher, I really wanted to work with teachers because I, I could see that I could have more influence at a wider level by helping teachers become more confident. And it really, it's only a lack of confidence that a lot of primary teachers share because they haven't enjoyed science in high school or they haven't studied science. So I guess that's, that, was the, that was one of the big reasons for me going into primary and wanting to work as a teacher educator and in that kind of transition period, I'd taken some university tutoring jobs and lecturing jobs to familiarise myself a bit more with the adult education too. And I really see that my background being so diverse lets me make lots of links very easily, especially in science and technology areas. And that's when I work with teachers in schools, it's not about the actual teaching, but it's about helping them contextualise what they're doing and see the links and they, they say, oh, didn't know you could do that. Well, that's how you do that. And it's all about showing them ways and, and helping them think about and providing some confidence for primary teachers in STEM. That's very interesting. I picked a few things as you were talking. The first thing that I want to go back for a minute is why did your supervisor said to you that you are, I suppose, wasting your time in the lab <laughs> as you go out. Like I personally really like labs. I like tinkering with things, and that's what, that's what happens in the lab. Yeah, well, it's yeah, and it was odd too that she had made the career change from. I think she she was a high school English teacher, and she'd only kind of in the, in the last five or six years completed her doctorate in genetics as well. And I think her seeing that that passion for working with children in me. Oh, I see. Yeah, what's the driving force behind that? 
it's not that I enjoyed my lab work. I really enjoyed the science and the learning behind the actual lab work, and I still do. But I guess she could see something a bit extra there, and unfortunately she passed away before I finished. But she was right. I ended up going back to a classroom. So there was one teacher that had a huge impact in your life and career, right? That's what a teacher is supposed to do. Yeah, and we often talk about high school teachers having that impact. But in this case, you know, this was a tertiary-level teacher. Yeah, still a teacher. Yeah, It's just for the daily life, like as an adult. It's very interesting. So, But apart from that, like through all these years, you have essentially become a polymath. Is it a fair thing to say like i can see here you've got obviously background in music you did religious studies your phd is in science you've taught mathematics there's quite a few things there is it unusual i wouldn't say that it is unusual when you start talking to scientists they often will will reveal that they play a musical instrument for example or math teachers in high school play musical instruments there there really are a lot of linkages kind of at that level of academia, I suppose. People that study science tend to be naturally good at mathematics, be naturally good at music. Unfortunately, I severely lack in the languages department, but I read that people who study music and maths are often very good at learning languages as well. And I I think that provides a driving force for what I do too. I like to encourage kids to be involved in the, the range of activities because I think a holistic approach gives them a much better sense of linkage with the real world. Mm. Do you think that perhaps, uh, you know, these days of specialization, there's an emphasis in studying one thing and becoming a super expert in that single thing? Uh, what you're saying perhaps goes against that, exposing yourself to many more things. Yeah, it's interesting you say that. That One of the secondary reasons for me leaving my research was because I couldn't talk to anyone about what I was doing. I'd gone down such a narrow pathway and, and work was so highly specific that it really made sense to only the people, my colleagues, that I was working with. So communicating right. my science back then uh, became difficult and I wanted to be able to communicate what I was doing to more people. So being a person that has exposed themselves to a lot of different types of knowledge or, you know, contexts, would that also be something that makes you a better teacher? I'm, I'm going to be biased in saying yes, of course. Um, I think that it's really provided having the depth of knowledge in different fields, I think helps me to make links that help students to make links with the things that they do and learn. So being able to draw upon that field knowledge in different situations, I can recall real-world examples very quickly of, of different things based on my own life experience that helps me to, to deliver material to students and to teachers. Yeah. Is that something that STEM is supposed to do, like STEM being cross-curricular? The acronyms, of course, talk about science, technology, engineering, and mathematics, but we know that uh, a looser definition of the term involves a lot more than that. So uh, do you think that if you want to be a good STEM teacher, you need to expose yourself to a lot of different disciplines. I think that's one of the challenges in being a STEM teacher, actually. I know in high school, one of the main challenges after the programming and timetabling is, is the fact that you're, you've got a group of teachers who do teach a specialist area and they're very comfortable in that area. And all of a sudden, they have to start thinking about integrating their work. 
in integration is something that primary school teachers are typically seen to do very well where they lack the specific content knowledge. So I see myself as being a person who sits in between those two realms. I've got a smattering of of broad content knowledge in the STEM areas. I've I've got the industry experience in STEM area and, and I now have the teaching, the pedagogical knowledge and understanding at a primary school level and I'm trying to bring that all together to help teachers in primary deliver a bit more content-specific material and I work with some high school teachers at the actual craft of teaching the pedagogy. Hmm. That's another interesting thing. So uh, once you have the ability to communicate with those different fields, with multiple fields, you can also communicate with a lot of different people, right? So that's where team building comes into it. Mm-hmm. And, you know, from, from a team building perspective, working with groups of teachers in a primary school working uh, with teachers between primary school and high school, even trying to to get more linkage happening between primary school teachers, high school teachers and the students in those situations as well. It's something I think we should should be looking at fostering. And I know that there are a lot of high schools already that have the, the primary school programs. There are schools where high school students come in and mentor primary students, and I think that is a good step. There seems to be a little bit of reluctance when you're talking about staff doing a similar thing, but I think that is would be a healthy approach to staff development on both ends of the spectrum. So, including students as teachers or as instructors or helpers. Yeah, as 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 instructors, as mentors for younger students, as a role model for younger students, Mm. but also having high school teachers coming in, not delivering material, but working with primary school teachers to help them deliver the material, and vice versa. Uh, would that be in the context of a project perhaps? Um, yeah, I guess so we talk about project-based learning a lot these days. I think there are opportunities there uh, from a primary perspective, from a high school perspective. We've got the new HSC syllabus that's promoting students becoming involved in research. So, uh, yeah, it would, be, it would be nice to see more crosstalk between high school teachers and primary school teachers, but also between STEM organisations, I guess, if you like, universities with high schools, universities with primary schools, those relationships are developing quite well. And I think we're just starting to see some industry relationships supporting high schools and and potentially primary schools through that as well. Well, that's quite interesting. I haven't thought of that in the past. So what you're saying is that a primary school is no longer just a primary school. It's just a place where you know, young kids up to you know, 12, 13 years old go, but they interact with a lot of people, let's say lecturers or teachers from other institutions like universities and uh, technical schools or high schools. Is that what you're saying? And is that actually happening? Have you got some examples of that? um, I have heard of, I don't remember the name of the school, but it's a department of education school. It's a new school. It's being built in Sydney. And I guess the premise of the school is, it's a primary school, I believe, that there is a community health centre and a community childcare centre attached to that school. So I think we're moving towards models of schools that are more highly community integrated. Hmm. So that's where, that's for, for example, you'll have a student of a high school that mentors a, a student from a primary school in yeah, that, mathematics as a tutor. That would be spot on. I, I could see that happening quite easily in that situation. And certainly... There are, there are high schools, the comprehensive high schools, I think, with the introduction of STEM, they're now starting to think about their, their whole school program 
some of the high schools that I've been involved with that are K to 10 or K to 12 high schools. Previously, really, the, the high school has been very separate from the primary school. They run their own programs. The high school teachers don't have anything really to do with primary school teachers. And it's sad. I've spoken to a few of them about, you know, hey, you've got primary school teachers here. It's a perfect opportunity for you to have those cross discussions happening on the same campus. And I think the discussion around STEM education the last few years has has triggered or has really sparked action in that situation where you've got primary and high school on the same campus now starting to program together, starting to work together. Hmm. And I think we are just starting to see some high schools working at in the department anyway. And we talk about uh, local clusters of schools. And I think in a lot of instances, the high school is seen as a bit of a flagship, but it should be a two-way streak. And again, I think STEM education is leading us down a pathway where there are more conversations happening between high school staff and primary school staff in that kind of community-based hub idea. (laughs) Interesting. So the discussion and push towards um, STEM integration, cross-curriculum and project-based learning over the last 10, 20 years is also pushing the discussion towards a more holistic approach in education where all levels of education are being rethought is it a fair thing to say? Are we re-examining education from kindergarten to university? I think we're starting to blur the boundaries a little bit to provide opportunities for students to explore their interests in in those kind of grey areas. I mean, we you always hear about primary students that, that function very highly in music and mathematics, and I think especially with the discussions and research around 21st century learning, different models of learning, the influence of technology on students being able to learn at home or in their own time, uh, flexible learning scenarios. I think we are really starting to see a bit of a movement where students who have an interest are now able to pursue that interest rather than being boxed in to a syllabus. And that's because of the flexibility that the system is acquiring through this redesign and through this discussion. Yeah, I'd like to think that's where we're moving. I remember, like in my case, when I was going through university, uh, going through university was what it was all about. Uh, you know, school existed so that kids eventually go through an AKC or some kind of examination process and enter university and hopefully graduate and get a job. Is it different now? I don't think that's changed. I don't think that will change because of the constraints of assessment. <laughs> this And this is something that in, in a lot of forums that I've, that I've been to over the last couple of years, STEM forums, they're always the um, – The issue of assessment always pops up and it's a real difficult one. How do you assess students that are working above or beyond their level or are working on things that really have not been categorised or written down? I honestly, yeah. For example, um, a student who in primary school who develops an app and starts to make money and becomes an entrepreneur in primary school doesn't need to progress on to do an HSC. If they're making a living, there's no need to do that. They don't need to go to university if, if they're successful in the area that they do. And yet we have no means of assessing that student on their abilities mm. because they aren't they haven't sat a, a test. 
maybe they're not testable anymore. It's like I think maybe we <laughs> sometimes yeah, I, there's a lot of thought required in some areas, and it's and it's only minority. I'm not saying it's everyone in that boat, but I think when the opportunity arises for a student to pursue a a course of learning that's different, I think that we need to think seriously about how uh, how to help that student and how to how to assess their abilities in in that particular domain. Yeah, our, some discussions we had with previous guests in this podcast are we were mentioning the ability for students to enter university or other degrees via projects uh, and portfolio actually portfolios of projects so um, you show a committee the work that you've done in a particular area and then based on that you can uh, get access to the program or get partial access to the program perhaps some more work is required and so on the problem there is scaling it to like hundreds of thousands of students that enter university every year and not just in australia but also around the world but that was one possible solution to this i think that's where the new hsc science course kind of comes into its own and provides that opportunity Mm. so what do you see happening in this field from the information that you have from an assessment point of view from an assessment especially assessing via portfolios of projects i i think i feel that that's probably going to become more the norm when people enter the workforce for example they're asked to present a portfolio of work they often have an e-portfolio i do myself employers are looking for not so much what you know but what you can demonstrate that you can do and a portfolio is really the best way to do that i think that's why we're having a lot of success in that that area of assessment i was just saying if you can think about what kind of skills go into creating a portfolio uh, we go back to what we were discussing earlier in regards to the ability of a person to have multiple skills so there's a lot of communication there, there's presentation skills, there's ability to write or language, create uh, a demonstration of the skills of composition. Um, there's quite a few things that go in creating a portfolio that are, I suppose, beyond what an exam can capture, a formal exam. Right. And I think that's, again, where a portfolio gives a lot of students who probably otherwise wouldn't be very successful in exams an opportunity to to show what they're capable of doing. And, and a lot of the skills are not necessarily skills that are explicitly taught in school. For example, the ability to, to put together a video presentation, it's not – maybe it's in, in a high school syllabus. There's nowhere in the primary school syllabus I'm aware that we specifically teach a student how to put a video together. I know that a lot of kids – making this their hobby these days too. They're sitting at home, it's what they're doing on their technology. And I think it's really important for them to be able to demonstrate those skills if, and especially again when we hear about STEM jobs being created that rely on technology-based skills, if they're the kind of skills that are more innate and not, not easy to assess, perhaps portfolio or perhaps even Demonstration by work experience is a good way for students to be assessed on what they can do. Yeah. Well, how do you see the skills that a young person, say today's 10-year-old, would need in 20 years from now? Very, very difficult. Um, 
crystal ball? You know, I think communication skills still are at the base. The ability to write well, the ability to speak well, the ability to communicate face-to-face, the ability to communicate successfully online is something new. Uh, Once upon a time we wrote paper letters to people and you would take more time, I think, in drafting, in writing. I know that we still teach drafting and the editing process in primary school. And I think and I feel too that it's very important that those basic communication skills are taught and are, are valued and are assessed and that we give students the opportunity to display, to demonstrate and to use those skills in a wide range of situations. Well, if we take uh, today as an example, just in my case, I find that the vast majority of my communication happens online, just like we are doing now, Mark, actually. It's, it's a very similar mode of communication. The, you know, the, the physical aspect of being able to see you is not necessarily there anymore, so we need to use other cues to coordinate. We also communicate a lot across not just time zones, but across cultures and instantly so those uh, smaller nuances and the peculiarities of how people communicate across the world are also becoming important to be able to be clear and I suppose those are also issues that today's 10 year old will have to deal with a lot more in 10 or 20 years from now but yeah I think you're right and, and I know that they I'm pretty they do they do communicate in in this way I know for example, when they're doing when they're playing online games, they're communicating with peers mm. using headsets. So they're they're having online conversations. It's definitely a skill that requires attention. We know by the amount of cyberbullying that happens in schools, for example, that it is it does lead to problems. There are a lot of issues with it. We are only, I think, just starting to learn how to teach students how to communicate online properly. Email is seen by a lot of people, for example, as being very casual and yet email is is written form and it's a written record of what's done. So it can be completely the opposite. And for students to realise the different situations I think is important. I know that they're practising and I know that that's a skill that they will take with them into the future. And I also think a lot of students struggle with communication in different forms. Yeah. Do you think that, you know, subjects that cover those topics, uh, not for this physical education, for example, should there be a subject on online communication? Maybe not a subject, but maybe the opportunity to be involved in online learning as a way of demonstrating that skill. So we talk about uh, part of my work is obviously presenting teacher workshops and there's been a lot of discussion about the advantages of what's called situated professional development. A lot of schools are moving towards having presenters come in and run a whole school workshop rather than sending individual teachers off to a conference to do their learning. And I think that we need to maybe think about that model with our students and provide opportunities for them to be involved in a learning program that actually simulates a real-world situation. Yeah. Well, so many things are changing. Uh, I, I remember when I was a, a student just finishing high school, we were looking at you know, subjects on how to use some office software, like how to use Microsoft Word and things like that. Are those still important or are we going 
where in a, in a past IT society where you know the cloud and the cloud tools is what we need to be able to use in order to be productive, both in business, in school, in university, pretty much throughout life. Yeah, it's an interesting question, and I've heard people ask the same question before: um, Do we need to be teaching students IT skills explicitly? You know, when I was I was having a conversation with a staff member the other day about the fact that when I was in primary school, I was learning how to code in BASIC or program in BASIC. Mm -hmm. And through university, we were learning how to use a spreadsheet, how to use a word processor. And the, the, the school, I don't think these skills are taught explicitly these days. I think we expect students to be able to use them. I have heard a lot of people calling or referring to the term digital natives, and I really don't think that it's true. I, I still believe very strongly that students need to be shown how to use technology, mm-hmm. or at least for us to be modelling the way that we want them to use technology. I, I really don't think that a student is capable of putting together a spreadsheet and generating a graph innately that's i don't think that that's something that that everyone is born with and i I strongly firmly believe that as as teachers we need to be modeling to students how we want them to be using particular apps and then providing opportunities for them to identify different apps for different situations uh, to use software in different ways creatively but I, i honestly feel that they need to have some modeling there to start with in your capacity as a trainer, do you think the teachers are ready to provide that kind of instruction or do we need to help them? Yeah, you know, at the Adelaide University, the Computer Science Education Research Centre is offering a lot of teacher professional development that's presented for free to schools. And I've been involved in that myself. I've done some of the coursework. We've had some presenters around to schools. And I think that that is a fantastic step forward in showing teachers or engaging teachers in teaching the technology, the digital technology, a bit more explicitly. So there are courses there, and I know a lot of teachers are starting to take up that learning as a part of their professional development. So, yes, I think that we are seeing a movement towards teaching technology a bit more explicitly. And, again, this is from a primary perspective. I know that in high school we've got a different syllabus or different digital technology syllabi that promote that kind of learning. Yeah, great. Yeah, I've got the same feeling. Uh, and I feel like I also have to train myself. And I'm, I'm talking as uh, an ex-university lecturer. I uh, was having trouble communicating with my students uh, via email because the language they used, uh, I could not quite understand. You know, it was too modern. Uh, the grammar was different <laughs> <laughs> to what I had learned in school. Uh, words were shortened. Um, in order to preserve space, I suppose, and become more efficient. Uh, so yeah. Yeah, it goes vice versa. You know, it's funny that you should say that. One of the principals at one of the schools that I work at was he bought in a, it was a, I think it was a, a grammar book that his brother had used in year six. And, and this must have been, I think, 40, 45, 50 years ago, even. He was reading through. And the thing that struck me was the size of the vocabulary. And it made me think students, I think a lot of students have a very limited vocabulary these days. And, uh, you know, I tend to feel that the ability to use words, it is very important given that we communicate so briefly and so rapidly that, you know, an email 
can't be deleted and it's very easy to to say the wrong thing, use the wrong word in the wrong context. Can't take it back anymore. That's, uh, that's another thing that people need to understand, especially young people, because uh, uh, whatever they put in on Facebook these days or Instagram or whatever it might be will be there forever. Right. And you can't take it down like There's a lot of ambiguity in what people say. Yeah. And it's something that we didn't have to deal with when we were at that age. True, and there seems to be uh, such a huge difference in range of context these days too. It's very easy to misinterpret writing yeah. online. Yeah. Um, I'd like to switch context uh, now and just go into your work as a trainer of teachers. And I'm looking here, you've got uh, quite a repertoire. <laughs> so, for example, you've got professional development on how to uh, how to engage students in science, um, uh, how to use, uh, how to teach science constructively, how STEM is, you're saying, is easier than you think. <laughs> so could, could you take us through some of the things that you do in your capacity as a trainer? Sure. Um, I'll start with my work as in university. Um, working with pre-service teachers. These, we're talking about students who are either doing an undergraduate course or postgraduate studies at both primary and secondary, but most of my work has, again, focused at primary level. A lot of teachers that come through university courses and primary teachers I'm talking about don't have a science background or don't like doing science because they've had negative experiences in high school, mostly, they say. We often do a hands-up survey very quickly in a cohort of maybe 300 students. Normally, there are less than 10 students who have studied science at high school. Wow, that's amazing. And I think historically, so we, we're left with a lot of teachers in primary schools who are reluctant to teach science, technology, engineering, and even mathematics, all aspects of STEM. And it's not that they can't. It's because they've had a negative prior experience and they now lack the confidence to do that. So, yes, it's true. I've had a lot of different, diverse and varied experiences in teaching a very wide audience in different subjects. And for me, that's been very deliberate. To have a broad background myself, I think, is modelling to people that being able to make connections is important these days in a modern world. And as a teacher educator, I, I, don't, I see my role as being more of a companion or a mentor or, or someone who is there to provide support, to bounce ideas off. And I guess in me showing people how to make or, or in the fact that I can make connections for people, they learn to make connections for themselves. Um, so outside of university then, uh, you know, working with pre-service teachers is one thing. They're learning about the theory and they're learning to put that theory into practice. So there's that aspect of teaching. But then my work in schools is working with teachers who have completed their study. Some of them are early career teachers, but some of them are mid to late career as well that really have never engaged in teaching STEM. And so when... I have run workshops at conferences that, that focus on the fact that STEM is not difficult to teach. I see myself as a person who promotes confidence in teaching STEM. 
And I think one of the things that I really try and push is this idea that STEM is not a subject. And because a lot of teachers think, oh, we're going to teach STEM today. We have to have all of these elements in the lesson. And that really freaks us out because there's just so much there to cope with. How do we possibly draw all of those areas and all of those syllabus outcomes and all of the resources all together into one place? So the task is too great and that's what causes the fear. Right. There's, there's this huge wall of perception that STEM is kind of untouchable. Or now, actually, I think we're moving beyond that. I think that there's a perception that we have to teach STEM. And all of the digital technologies, I think there, there, there may be some confusion about or between what's digital technology and what is STEM. And I think that a lot of people may be, myself included, sometimes blur that line between STEM and the fact that digital technology is not necessarily STEM or vice versa. Yeah. Uh, you mentioned about building confidence. How do you do that? If somebody had a bad experience with science in the past, it could be 20 years ago, it could be in the recent past, uh, like failed a test, like things like that are very typ typical and then you just can't get to the next level because you keep failing that test. So you convince yourself that you're not good at this. How do you overcome that? What are some of the techniques that you use to help, uh, especially teachers, move beyond that? Something that happens a lot in the, the universities I've worked in, I've noticed that definitely a hands-on approach helps to break down that barrier. And over and above that, I think a collaborative approach softens that barrier where you've got groups of students. And I know typically university students hate working in groups <laughs> because they're being assessed on, on someone else's work. But I think that the main benefit of that collaborative learning scenario is that you're not in it alone and that everyone's in that same boat and you have, but you have an opportunity to play, and we were talking about that before we started recording. And, and I think mm -hmm. play yeah. is a vital aspect in STEM of, of STEM learning. So here's a few techniques. Then you get uh, the the person that you're trying to help to try out a few things, hands on, as you said, just practical things, nothing scary at that point or end point, I should say. <laughs> then you have the the. The collaboration between people, there's a few people in a group with a similar fear of STEM, let's say mathematics. They collaborate in helping each other to get out of it. And uh, gradually, using a few different tools, gradually, uh, eventually you leave that behind and you can move forward. Yeah, so I guess you're also, you're also starting to see that people have different skills to contribute, though. Some, someone might be, might be good at math. Someone may have a strength in electronics or communication and, and working together as a team and this this reflects real world working together as a team in a company we rely on having people with different strengths but being flexible enough to work as a part of that team and so I think that's why the approach at university with with pre-service teachers is is being successful I've used a similar approach myself in schools with teachers who have been teaching for a long time the workshops, most, most of the workshops that I've run are team-based workshops. They're collaborative learning workshops and they're hands-on. These are getting teachers to play with whatever it is, digital technology, straws and paper, it doesn't matter, to be, to be getting physical with what they're doing and to experience what the students might be doing as well. I think that's been where my major success is. Yeah. I suppose that seeing is believing, right? If you 
achieve something practical. You build a structure, for example, based on some mathematical concept and you can see it in front of you. Uh, that's reality now. You can actually do it where in just a few minutes earlier you thought you couldn't. Yeah, and you see teachers sitting in workshops feeling very proud of the spaghetti straw structure that they've built. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and it's, you know, <laughs> from uh, as someone who really whose passion is science, it's, it's wonderful to see people who never have, have been turned away from science to be re-engaging in science like that through by, by, by hands-on, yeah. Hmm. How do you go from that, okay, the first few wins of a teacher who prior to that workshop was afraid of science or mathematics, to actually the same teacher being able to go into a classroom and engage the students in science? So I guess because I am a trained teacher, I'm in a fortunate situation where I can work in a class with a teacher in a one-on-one mentoring situation. And so, you know, we have conversations before class to help plan the work. Kind of, there's a lot of apprehension in planning STEM. And then we, I'll sit in or I may even do some demonstrations in class of new technology or a particular pedagogical style, um, deliver some specific content knowledge as a way of teaching that material, not only to the students that are sitting there, but to the teacher that's in that class as well. So I, I guess I'm acting as a demonstrator in that capacity. And then after the class, we will have a conversation and break down the components of the lesson uh, as a bit of a reflection. And again, that's part of uh, the normal learning process these days where we're encouraging students to reflect on their own learning and assess their own learning. So, uh, you know, I guess what I'm doing with a teacher is modelling teaching practice and at the same time by being there for example when a teacher is is trying a new lesson first time just the fact that they have someone there that they can fall back to or that they can look to for suggestions or team teaching situations it helps to build the confidence right so you know it's not in a workshop environment anymore it's in the actual classroom where the, the trainee teacher is delivering a lesson and then you're helping along. That's exactly Providing right. confidence in the background, right? I'm working as a teacher, but really working as, as the teacher educator in the classroom. Hmm. That's amazing. It must, be taking, oh, it must take a lot of time, though. So, no, it does. It's just, it, it just seems to come so naturally because it's something I'm so passionate about and that I love doing it, everything. And that I think that's the real benefit in in the scope of experience that I've had. I've, I've put myself through these different situations in different fields of study and I think that's where the real benefit starts to kick in is that you are more comfortable working in unknown situations. Mm, yep. Uh, what are the most typical, I suppose, um, obstacles that you see in trying to help teachers overcoming the fears is some kind of common denominator that you see occasionally or regularly it's really hard to put a finger on the actual fear itself there are some teachers who just remain reluctant to engage in teaching the material i think maybe i don't know maybe it's because they obviously have a strength in other areas and would prefer or are comfortable teaching in those other areas and they really don't see the need to be teaching STEM areas of work. I'm guessing that in the next few years that there is another, the, the revised primary science and technology syllabus in New South Wales 
is coming up for implementation next year. And I know that, again, the University of Adelaide is pushing the fact that, you know, for example, do, you, do, do teachers know what an algorithm is in primary school? And, and well, you, you, you're going to have to teach it because it's becoming syllabus material. You know, there, there are a lot of teachers who, again, they'll put up a wall, oh, I have to teach what an algorithm is. I can't do that, so I just won't do that. And then there are – but there are a lot of schools that are starting to work, like I said, working in a community situation, and that's why they're starting to draw upon the content knowledge of, of high school teachers, of industry specialists. You know, we see scientists in schools programs, parents coming in more and more in that community hub, and I think that's the real benefit of having a school – functioning as a part of that community hub we can just draw on so much support these days so another thing then they can advise teachers is that don't hesitate to invite others to come to your class and deliver our unit of work yeah and i you know i think that especially early career teachers now are completely comfortable working with other people in their classroom it's just it's it's the way that they're learning in uni themselves it's the way that we're teaching our students in schools to learn to be comfortable, um, to be comfortable about showing evidence of their work, evidence of their learning. Uh, we talk a lot about data use, and again, you know, teachers need to be. I think, and this is this is one of the big pressures that teachers face is collecting data and collecting evidence and having to analyse that when they historically haven't had to do. And so, all of those analytical skills that teachers are being called upon. I know that, that they're valuable skills for teaching students because the students are going to be needing them. Yeah. It's a data-rich world. Cool, I'll say. <laughs> <laughs> um, another thing, and correct me if I'm wrong here, I think you also do work in re-engagement of students in science. So a, a bit earlier we were talking about how students are always very enthusiastic as they are younger, so in primary school, and then think something happens in life in general, in school perhaps, and that that excitement diminishes and uh, i believe that you do some work in methodology for re-engaging students in science would you like to tell us about that yeah i think this came from my experience working with pre-service teachers in university so i have conversations with with teachers in different schools about working with students who have disengaged from science and, and or, or stem i should say and how to re-engage those students. And really, again, the biggest success that we've had is just simply through play and first-hand investigation and, and being hands-on in class. It's, it's letting students tinker. It's letting students synthesise and create as a way of or re-engaging them, to bringing them back into this is, this is why science and technology and mathematics can be fun. It, it can be enjoyable. This is how it makes sense. This is how it links to the real world. This is why it's important when you leave school for all of those reasons. And a lot of students, you know, they, they start to, to play. They start to meddle around with mathematics, playing different games, making grids. Um, and, and they think to themselves, hey, this is not – this is not how I thought maths was supposed to be taught. This is actually maybe a little bit fun uh, and maybe it starts to make sense to me and all of a sudden, oh, I'm interested in what I'm doing. I had that exact situation happen today. I was working as a casual teacher in a class of year three, four students. We, they were learning about multiplication, you know, times tables, and they, they were dreading what was coming up and I threw a grid at them and they learned to multiply using a grid. 
And then well, this may seem old school, but I introduced Battleship. Yep, the game, right? And reading coordinates. The game, Battleship, yeah. And I had 100% engagement students that were, were nowhere near interested in mathematics were all of a sudden having fun because they were playing a game. I said, hey, did you realize that what you're doing is maths and it's learning to read maps and coordinates? Oh, they said. Hmm. Oh, that makes sense. <laughs> and uh, that's why I love teaching. So the, the key there is to do science without actually uh, allowing the students to re- realize that they're doing science. Uh, you disguise it behind some kind of game situation, make it fun. I often yeah. talk to people about the planning side of this is difficult for people, I think, and, and I often refer to setting traps that spring and being the ability to plan further down the track to spring those traps for students to have that moment of understanding is the real real key and the real art to teaching. I think any any teacher who is a successful teacher who enjoys and loves their work will say the same thing, and that's just good teaching practice. So think about the art of teaching, right? It's not a blunt force type of operation I think <laughs> done by the book and by the manual. <laughs> You've got to look behind uh, the, you know, the, the obvious of I have to teach uh, this material because the students will have to do this test by the end of the term, et cetera, et cetera. But in reality, you need to go beyond that and, and uh, look between the lines, uh, figure out what kind of strategy you use based on the students you have, and the problems in the class or the opportunities in the class. Right? So there's, there's a lot going into the planning of delivery. Right. And I think very important too that teachers are able to modify on the fly as situations arise in class to, for example, be prepared to ditch a lesson that they have planned based on student interest. If students suggest that they are interested in a particular aspect, then why not explore that? And I think this goes back to the conversation that we had earlier about allowing students to explore their their interests outside of the curriculum or outside of the standard assessment box. Is this a philosophy that you've developed over the years as you've been dealing with students? I wouldn't say I've developed it, but I think it's... <laughs> Is it somebody that's influenced you or that you learn from, looking for an influ- influential person perhaps? Well, you know what? I think, Peter, it's my in that, it's my interest in science and it's, it's, it's a skill that that scientists and technologists need to be successful. If you're conducting an experiment and something fails, you need to be thinking, what else can I try? Or Mm -hmm. uh, from a technology point of view, if we are designing something, then we need to realise that we can change the purpose if the design takes us down that pathway. And, you know, and again, I think having the diverse background, being a flexible person, is a skill definitely that's required for contemporary teaching. So for a teacher to be able to see an opportunity and be willing to release some of the control back to the students or to pick up on student interests and present new material or develop material or provide the resources students need to follow that pathway I think that's a real skill in itself when we talk about 21st century learning and integrated learning, and I think that that's something that students will take with them into the future. So in other words, 
as a teacher, you need to constantly tinker with your teaching technique, right. the tools that you use, your approach, right? Tinkering is not just something you do in the lab or as you're playing with a gadget, but it's your own teaching. Yeah, so most of the successful or most of the teachers that have had big influences on my life, you know, we talk about being able to remember certain teachers for certain reasons. I think it was because they all allowed, they, they were flexible enough to allow me to pursue my interests in class or outside of class, doesn't mm-hmm. matter which. I think any good educator is able to see that in a person and provide the opportunities for that person. Do you think that teachers should actively you know, try to influence their students by you know, providing honest feedback, just like your PhD supervisor did with you? And I think that that's something that I try and do and that I try and model, certainly when I'm teaching, students are interested in, in the stories that I tell, uh, in my experiences, in how I in how I make linkages. Sometimes the linkages are very kind of cryptic almost, and, and it promotes a bit more higher order thinking. Students need to slow down and, and to, to think a little bit more about what how what they are doing in class relates to what they could be using outside or, or the other way around, what what spaces they're using outside of school bring to the classroom and help them in the classroom. That sounds like mentoring a little bit more than teaching. Is it a fair assessment? It's hard for me to divide those sometimes. It's just it's a part of what I do. It's I enjoy doing that. And I think it would come naturally to any teacher to draw upon those different experiences. Uh, You could possibly call it mentoring. You could possibly call it coaching. You could possibly call it life skills. I think it's it's just it's a part of the art of being a successful teacher. There you go. Yeah. The art of teaching. I like that. <laughs> <laughs> I like how that sounds. <laughs> uh, there is a book actually. Oh, is it the the art of teaching? Uh, I think there is a book by that name. Grady and Bendel. I've got to check that. Out. <laughs> Still have it on my shelf. Um, yeah. Well, speaking of books. <laughs> Would you like to recommend some books for our listeners? Oh, off the top of my head, there was some really good work and I should be able to recall the name, but Teaching Science Constructively, and it's an academic from Melbourne, and I, I really I really should be slapping myself on the wrist because I can't remember his name. It's okay. The book's called Teaching Science Constructively, and I know that it's probably a little bit outdated now, but a lot of, lot of really good ideas about conceptual learning uh, engaging students in through hands-on experiments. You know what? Mm-hmm. There are a lot of really good resources that come out of the American Science Teachers Association. It's called the NSTA, and uh, a lot of books focused on hands-on learning, getting real with science. So that that would be a good place to look as well. Yeah, I'm going to look this up and include it in the notes as well. It's a link to the association's site. I'll jot you a list as well. Yeah, thank you. That, that'd be great. Um, oh, by the way, we are in the rapid fire questions segment <laughs> of the podcast. <laughs> now, it sounds like you are a very busy person. So, how can you cope with all the things that you've got to do? Are there any applications or any tools that you use to keep yourself organized and productive? Yeah, again, I am a little bit old school. Um, if you can say that Microsoft Excel is old school, <laughs> it is a very useful. I think um, spreadsheets. I use spreadsheets for a lot. I use spreadsheets for databasing. I use them for graphing. I use them for project management too. So rather than 
there are just so many project management apps out there and probably teachers, a lot of teachers probably aren't aware of Gantt charts. I was introduced to a Gantt chart working as a, an education manager for a company a couple of years ago. And uh, they're very widespread in business and marketing, but not teaching. And it's one of the tools that I find most useful for keeping track of projects. You know, we talk about project-based learning in schools. Mm. Then we should be using project-based yep. apps for organizing our time. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, I did my PhD on a gun chart, by the way, and I finished it within about a month, a month early of what I had in the gun chart. And uh, I think the reason that I managed to finish it on time was because I was trying to make sure that I don't go, I don't go past my gunshot projections. <laughs> I think time management is a huge challenge for teachers and for students these days. Yeah. Uh, so that's that's a good point as well. What do you use Excel for? Is it Do you do data analysis or also essay project management? I use it, I use it for project management. I, I make charts in Excel. I know they're very rudimentary. I use Excel for making lists, for making tables, for analysing student assessment data, for timetabling. It just seems to have been a very flexible app for me, or for flexible pieces of software. Absolutely. Yep, I love it. Uh, I use uh, Google uh, Charts these days because of its ability to collaborate with other people really easily, but essentially it's the same kind of tool. I really really do, yeah. I should have said the, the whole Google... Google, Google Word, Google Sheets, yeah. and the whole ability to write collaboratively. I think I know a lot of schools are using the software. We we get feedback in real time. We can have our own piece to say, and it's again, it's you know, you're right. Google Sheets. I use it online myself to give people the opportunity to contribute. Yeah. How, how do you find out about the latest developments in education, things such as, you know, new teaching methodologies, new ideas for STEM projects, perhaps, um, changes in curricula, in you know, the Australian curriculum in particular? Do you have some kind of, um, for example, Google uh, alerts set up? Or do you use Google occasionally to find things? There are a couple of Facebook uh, groups that are particularly useful. Groups. Mm-hmm. Um, Butterfly is one of those. I know it's very popular and very widespread. Mm-hmm. The STEM group is very active there. Is that an open group? A Facebook group, yeah. So it, it, do you need an invitation to join? Is, or is, is it a closed group? Or um, you, you do need an invitation to join on that, yeah. But you know what? My own academic experience and upbringing has provided the skill of being able to conduct a literature search. <laughs> And the research skills, you know, I'm always scanning research literature, education literature, uh, what's happening on science news websites. I'm constantly browsing for ideas, what books are available, uh, what's coming up at conferences. I think a lot of teachers engage in conferences uh, for ideas. Yeah, I guess that they are my biggest sources of of information and, and ability to remain up, updated. Yeah. Do you have a blog or a place where you post your musings <laughs> or learnings for other people? Yeah, I, I have to admit, I don't. Um, I, I'm sorry, I don't have time to blog. I do provide material to Refraction Media, or they maintain a blog on their website about STEM and what people oh, okay. do, and I do send stuff into that periodically. But personally, I'm not a big blogger. Yep, no problem. It's okay. It's okay. Uh, it is very time consuming. I've got to say, to write a blog these days, 
when I do blog, it takes me about three or four hours just to write one, say, 500-word article. So it's not something I can do very often, but I do enjoy writing. So a lot of people do as well. That's what they do. But, yeah, I, I, I do. I write, I write for a couple of amateur society magazines scientific or semi pseudoscientific articles. But I do enjoy writing and blogging is, is one of those online. <laughs> uh, pseudoscientific, you said. <laughs> that, that word is very loaded for me. What Sorry? do you mean by pseudoscientific? What do you oh, mean amateur by pseudoscientific? All right. Okay. <laughs> because when I hear the word pseudoscience, uh, I hear of homeopathy and things like that. Uh, crop circles and heavy. <laughs> oh, no. I mean that I, I, I like to get in and I was a member of, of I'm a budgerigar person. I, I, this is how I learned my genetics years ago, breeding budgerigars. And so I like to help out on a community level there, running community workshops, writing for their um, society publications, things like that. That's great. Well, we'll be happy to include those publications as well or uh, places where your work can be found in the show notes. I think it'd be interesting for people to find. Um, do you program? Do I program? Yeah. Any, do you have a f- <laughs> favorite programming language other than Scratch? Yeah. Look, I, I was talking to someone the other day about moving students in primary school away from visual coding, block coding, and that because I write modules of work for a company that produces 3D printers for schools. And the conversation was around what, you know, I, I used to code basic in school myself and they kind of looked at me and frowned and snarled and said that is such an archaic language. And we, we, we talked about Python being a, a widely acceptable, um, easy language to learn for which there are lots of resources available. And I started poking around and I guess now I'm learning how to code in Python. Yeah. Yeah, Python is one of those languages that just because of the sheer amount of documentation that is available, it's a really a good place to get started with actual text-based yeah, languages. Yeah, right. And, you know, I'm going to move the – I work with a year four to year six STEM club at school, and they are going to start mm. stepping out of that block coding into Python. Yeah, awesome. It's a whole different discussion of, you know, the difference between block-based graphical languages and, and transitioning into text and whether there should be a transition at all, or maybe they should go straight into text. But let's <laughs> not get into it right now. There's so much happening. <laughs> there are so many resources available. I think for the most part, teachers are using block coding because it's, it's easy. It's what the majority of students are using already at home, a lot of them. Mm-hmm. But ultimately we need to be thinking where do students need to be again when they leave school and what what are the skills that they'll need for programming. Mm. Yeah, oh, we always start with the end in mind, but sometimes we just That's don't true. know what the end is and mm. we've got to start somewhere. Uh, from my experience teaching my son how to program, now my son is dyslexic, so he can't really read. He's getting better now, but uh, it's been a very long process to be able to read simple words. And through block language, we're able to expose him to programming principles. So then now he's very comfortable with them. And he's actually started transitioning into Python after about a year, year and a half right. of Scratch. So I suppose that's a, a good case uh, to be made for special needs kids, at least, at the very least. Yeah, yeah, and there are some very solid reasons for using visual programming as a music we, we I, I fall back on graphic notation to compose music. You know the fact that we to write using notes. Oh, so there's common ground there too. Yeah, it is. It is a programming language, isn't it? Totally, like yeah. musical notation. It is graphical. Yeah. So 
never thought mm-hmm. of that like that, but it is. Um, any parting thoughts for our listeners? Uh, imagine our listeners are like a, it could be a young teacher or um, a teacher who is having, who had some issues in the past with teaching science, and uh, now they have to uh, to get into it and do STEM. Uh, <laughs> what would you advise? I think best advice that I could offer is to identify support. There's just so much support available. And by support, I mean face-to-face support, not looking for the myriad of resources that are available online, but someone, and there are lots of people in the community who are willing to offer offer help with lots of different aspects of school these days, doctors, vets, lawyers. So find the right person. Maybe, yeah, the right person, an mm-hmm. industry person, mm-hmm. uh, someone that you know who runs a business that could help you teach some of that in class and gain a bit of confidence. Mm-hmm. There's so many different things you can do, but not doing anything is not going to get you anywhere. And I guess that's a real challenge. There is so much out there. We do have access to so much information. It can be overwhelming. And there's another skill worth developing is is how to make sense of and how to identify value and need. Yeah, great. Thank you for that. So, Mark, any um, contact details that you'd like to share uh, with our audience in case somebody would like to get in touch with you? I'm happy for people to email me. My email address mark at axononachievement.com.au. My website is there with information and contact details, axononachievement.com.au. I've got examples of the workshops that I run there. Uh, I've got links to sources of information, uh, links to industry partners that can help out. And, of course, I have to mention the STEM Expo here at Tarmel that's coming up in June, I think, is a fantastic opportunity for teachers to come and engage with and and form links with other teachers and STEM organisations and industry experts. So that is on June 26th. That's correct. It's called the Primary STEM Expo, yep, and you can find that on Eventbrite. Yep, I'm going to include a link to that in the show notes for people to find easily. Are you on Twitter, by any way, by any chance? I am on Twitter. Yep. Axonology is my Twitter address, Mark at Axonology. Are you an active uh, Twitter person? Not overly, but <laughs> when I get it, I do. <laughs> no worries. Kind of goes in dribs and drabs. Awesome. I'll check it out. One more thing would be LinkedIn. I do post a lot on LinkedIn. Right. So we'll include your LinkedIn link as well in the show that notes. That would be a good way to get in touch, yeah, actually. Yeah, great. Well, thank you, Mike. I really appreciate your time today. I learned a lot, personally. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I, I really enjoy and love talking about this kind of thing. Great. So have a good day, and we'll talk again very soon. Thank you so much for having me, Peter. Appreciate it. That's all for this episode. The notes for this episode that include links to many of the resources mentioned and information on how to get in touch with Mark are available on our website, texplore.com forward slash pay forward slash STEMIFES. Each episode comes with its own page on the Tech Explorations website and a goldmine of information in the notes. This STEMIFES podcast was produced by Tech Explorations. Do you have any questions or suggestions? Would you like to nominate a friend or colleague to be our guest? Please email us at pa at texplore.com. Subscribe to us on iTunes by searching for the name of our podcast, Stemithers. That's S-T-E-M-I-V-E-R-S-E. 
Thanks for listening and we'll see you again next time.